Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Amy, and I'm one of the pastors here. And as we have said a few times already, and as you may have picked up on, this is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. And so you've probably noticed that our liturgy is a little bit different. We're not doing that really lively, interactive Kenyan liturgy anymore, although there is a fair amount of liveliness happening in the room anyway. Uh, the words that we're saying all through the season of Lent are so much older. They come to us through the centuries from some of the earliest confessions of the church. And for centuries, the church has used this season of Lent, these 40 days, this tithe of the year, as a way of preparing for Easter. And that might seem kind of strange, because why do we need to prepare for Easter? But God knows that we do need to prepare for Easter, that we are liturgical creatures. We're people who are formed by the things we say, the things that we do with our bodies, the habits that we keep, the things that we pay attention to. Our liturgies shape our sense of what is true, our sense of who we are, and our understanding of what story we're a part of. And Easter is our story. So it makes sense to move our liturgies to help us enter into that stories. But just as liturgy can form us, liturgies can also deform us. Because we're always doing liturgy, we're always doing liturgical things, not just in church, but in our daily lives, in our online habits, in all of our social settings, at work, at the grocery store. Our life is full of little rituals, little things we do and things we say, little interactions and habits of attention. And so participating in liturgies of greed, of self-promotion, liturgies of mindless consumption or of social media or of endless news cycles, some of those liturgies can actually lie to us about who we are and what story we're a part of. They can actually convince us that death and scarcity and that the violence and worry that we see all around us in the world is actually our only reality, that that's really the truth. And if that's our only reality, then the only way to get through this life is to grab what's ours and not let go, to climb up on the backs of others, to steel ourselves against the world and isolate ourselves from other people so that we can stay safe. But that's not reality. And that's not who we are. We are Easter people. We believe and live a different story. And so it's worth these 40 days of Lent to just remember that, to wreck ourselves toward that Easter reality. And that way we can remember who we really are, what story we are really a part of, so that we can live as Easter people and bless the world with Easter reality. And all of the texts that we heard this morning are telling that same story. So we're just gonna spend a few minutes with Deuteronomy, with Moses, with Jesus, with Paul, all telling this same story. So a few minutes ago, Kelly read Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 through 11, and it's the end of this massive section of Deuteronomy called the Deuteronomic Code, as I'm sure you're all aware. 
And in this section, which is most of the book of Deuteronomy, the Israelites have been wandering through the desert for 40 years, faithless, all kinds of struggles. But here they are right on the brink of entering into the promised land. They are right on the edge of what God has been telling them would happen all along. And when they get there, right at the precipice, Moses delivers this code of law. And this law gives instructions for how they will remember who they are, how they will remember who God is, how they will remember their story, what reality they're living in. And Deuteronomy 26, today's passage, is at the very tail end of that big Deuteronomic code. And it looks forward to when they enter the land any minute now, and they will plant seeds, and they will reap, and they will have their first harvest. And it gives them instructions for a liturgy once they do. So the people are to bring their harvest to the priest, and they say some words of presentation. The text gives them the words. You can almost imagine it going up on a screen in bold. And then the priest takes their offering and places it on the altar, and then the people all bow. And then, as if the words were bold, they all say this together. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien, few in number. And there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. When the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us, imposing hard labor on us, we cried to the Lord our God, the God of our ancestors. The Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and so on and so on. And then after they recite this creed, this declaration of who they are and who this harvest comes from, then they all feast. They eat it. Well, a couple weeks ago, um, as Liz mentioned last week, I was at Matthew 25, this gathering in El Paso, and I stayed on for a couple of days for this border encounter trip. So we went back and forth across the U.S.-Mexico border doing all sorts of things, hearing all sorts of stories. Um, but one thing that really stuck with me is that we visited a migrant shelter in Juarez, so on the Mexican side of the border, run by this Mexican Anglican church, basically out of their multi-purpose room. And this migrant shelter was filled to the brim with women from Central America with their children, women who were fleeing all kinds of violence. There were some really heartbreaking stories. And then this week, we've probably seen some really heartbreaking stories in the news. We've probably heard about more and more Ukrainian migrants fleeing violence, fleeing war in their country, flooding their borders. We saw this last year as Afghans fled their country, many of them coming here to resettle. Our world is full of these migrant stories. And we can imagine how those migrant stories will shape the understanding of generations of who these people are of what they have lived through, of who God has been for them. We can imagine someday, hundreds and hundreds of years from now, the great, 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 great grandchildren of one of these migrants finding themselves 
at their dinner table in whatever strange and unexpected new place they find themselves rooted and beginning a story saying, a wandering Ukrainian was my ancestor or a wandering Guatemalan was my ancestor. A wandering Afghan was my ancestor. And they fled and lived as aliens in a hostile land and were treated harshly and afflicted. What's the purpose of a liturgy like this? A liturgy of remembering this? Well, it reminds people who they are. It reminds people that being a migrant and being an alien, being afflicted, being oppressed, is part of what has formed them as a people. And so it also reminds them who God is, who God has been for them in that story. It reminds them that God is the one whose ear always bends towards the cries of the oppressed. God is the one who is always listening for the downtrodden when they call out to him. God is the one who delivers his people when all hope seems lost, when the deck is stacked against them. And God is the one who is ultimately leading his people to a place of harvest, even of fruitfulness, a place of feasting and abundance and gratitude. And even though it wasn't part of today's lectionary reading, the verse right after today's reading describes what happens when people live like this, when people remember this identity. Because it, Moses tells the people that they are to take a tenth of that harvest, this first harvest in the land, and they're to give it away to the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow so that everyone who enters their towns will have enough to eat and be satisfied. This is how they don't just tell the story, they don't just remember the story, but they actually live the story of the mercy of God. They extend everything they have received into the world. Well, if we turn to today's passage from Luke 4, from the Gospel. In this passage, Jesus is led into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. And it is packed with these Old Testament echoes and allusions of God's people wandering in the desert for 40 years. So that story that the people in Deuteronomy are just coming out of, Jesus is entering into. And the echoes of that story help us see that in Jesus, God is entering the story of humanity in a different way. In Deuteronomy, he heard, we heard how God's ear is always inclined to hear the cries of the downtrodden. But here in Luke, we see Jesus becoming downtrodden himself. We see God entering a world that is groaning under the weight of sin, under abuses of power and cycles of violence and greed, in a land that is barren and won't bring life. And there, Jesus takes the temptations and the vulnerabilities of humanity into himself so that he can redeem them. And so as soon as Jesus, in the previous chapter of Luke, passes through the waters of baptism, another Old Testament echo of God's people passing through the waters of the Red Sea, Jesus goes straight into the wilderness to set things right. The wilderness is that place where the first humans were banished 
from the Garden of Eden. It's the place of hard toil, the place of the first recorded murder. And the wilderness is the place where God's people have wandered for 40 years, hungry and idolatrous and constantly testing God. It's a place of suffering, a place of hardship, a place where people got really disappointed with God and really disappointed with themselves, where they forgot their story. So that's where Jesus goes. He goes there to the wilderness. He enters the sufferings and the disappointment and the groaning of humanity. And he resists those temptations that their ancestors couldn't. He finally reverses this story of death and sets in motion God's renewal of the world. And so here, after 40 days of fasting and wandering, the devil offers Jesus this easier vision of his life this vision of power and glory, but without having to trust God, without risking anything, without being vulnerable. And Jesus responds to all those temptations with the words of the book of Deuteronomy. He responds with the words of the law of his people, the words that are seared into Jesus's own memory from the liturgies of his day. Jesus holds fast to who he is and what story he's in and who God is. And that brings us to that final passage from Romans, which Weber read so beautifully. It begins, Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And that Greek word for end here is telos. That might be a word that you've heard before. It's such a lovely word. It doesn't just mean end like the final point but end like a goal, like the destination, like the fulfillment of something. And so it says Jesus is the telos of the law. Jesus is the culmination, the fulfillment, the image, the destination, the embodiment of everything the law of God was supposed to do for his people. Everything that all those liturgies and rules have been pointing to, it's here in Jesus. Jesus is the telos of that harvest liturgy in Deuteronomy 26, so that we can now say a wandering Galilean is our ancestor. And he's the telos of the law that he spoke to the devil in Luke 4, the law that responds to all the seductions of cheap power, that withstands all that temptation with trust in the mercy of God. But Jesus doesn't just speak the law. He doesn't just know the law. Jesus lives the law in his own flesh. And on the cross, he finally defeats its power to condemn and shame us. And then his resurrection opens up this death-defeating life of God to a humanity that is still wandering in the wilderness. So how do we get in on this Easter life, this resurrection life of Jesus? That's the question of this season of Lent. And Paul gives us a liturgy. He says, confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Confess that Jesus is Lord. Pledge your allegiance to Jesus and only Jesus not to anything else, not to any of the things that tempt us, not to political power, not to economic systems, 
not to personal gain, not to our nation, not to a set of religious rituals, not to any of the idols that we are tempted to build so that they will rubber stamp whatever broken ways we are getting through the world. Jesus is Lord, only Jesus. And then believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Believe that God is reversing the whole system of death in the world and making all things new. Believe in resurrection life. Believe in this overflowing, abundant life of God. Believe that this is reality. And this little liturgy from Paul reminds us who we are, who we trust, what story we're a part of, and then it tells us what happens next. When we live in this liturgy, in this story, Paul tells us, then no one, believes, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul says this is the end of shame. This is the end of the distinction between Jew and Greek. This is the end of insiders and outsiders and deserving and undeserving in the people of God. This is the cracking open of the life and generosity of God to all, to all who call on him. Just as God heard the calls of the Israelites in Egypt, God hears all who call on him. And this is our liturgy. This is the liturgy of the Easter people. To say with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, to believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, to live inside of God's generous life, and then to open that life to all. Let's pray.